Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to New Books and Jewish Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host today, Rachel Edelman, Professor of Hebrew Bible at Hebrew College in Boston. Today, I have invited Dr. Ruth Kara Ivanov-Kaniel to speak to us about her book, Holiness and Transgression, The Mothers of the Messiah in Jewish Myth, published in 2017 by Academic Studies Press, but it was originally written in Hebrew as Kedeshot u Kedoshot Imahot Hamashiach Bamitos in 2014. So Dr. Ruth Kara Ivanov-Kaniel is a faculty member at the Department of Jewish Thought at Haifa University, a research fellow at the Tel Aviv Institute for Contemporary Psychoanalysis and the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem. Her research focuses on Jewish mysticism, messianic myth, gender theory, and psychoanalysis. So I just want to welcome you, Ruth, to the New Books Network. And I want to ask you a few questions. What motivated you to write this book on Mothers of the Messiah? Shalom, Rachel. Uh, hello, I'm really happy to be here and thank you for your uh, invitation and also the dialogue we had a few years ago. And you also wrote about this uh, enigmatic dynasty of the Messianic mothers. So I think we share interest in this big mythical theme. Um, I would start, I think, with a question that I had as a young uh, woman. I had always interest in uh, paradoxes and contradiction between, I think, antinomianism and holiness, the, the places where the borders of the law create the heart of the law, and the heart, maybe it's more important, of the holiness. In Hebrew, it's, it's really 
Amazing how Gdeshot and Gdoshot, the, the most, the holiest place is built on ruins of transgression. So this paradox, how come that the Messiah is born from the hardest sins, such as incest, adultery, harlotry, promiscuity? Why the Messiah should come from all this dark side of life? And what the Jewish myth through the ages trying to tell us by using a lineage, biographical lineage, you know, biography, it's a huge uh, thing. Uh, Nietzsche said that the most important thing is biography. So it's a biography of women, starting with the Lord daughters. And then the story of Tamar, maybe later we will talk more about uh, a specific, some uh, parts of these stories and details, and then the story of Ruth and Boaz, but this all lineage go through the same pattern of transgression. So this paradox always strike me, and I try to understand how the commentators later, Hazal and then the Kabbalists, what they did with this contradiction between a prohibition and, and a transgression and holiness. How would they build it explanations to themselves why the Messiah coming from these uh, hard stories and, and this way of uh, birth? Okay, before, so before we launch into this, the particular stories of the daughters of Lot and Tamar and Judah and um, Ruth and Boaz, I want to ask you a personal question, if I may. So in your introduction, <laughs> you wrote that you are the daughter of a refusenik, right? Like Sharansky, Jews in the Soviet Union that were involved with the renewal of Hebrew and Jewish learning, and then were forbidden exit visas to leave the Soviet Union to come to Israel. So how old were you when you came to Israel? And um, can you tell me more about what that impact of being the child of refusenecks might have had on you and whether it, you think it informs this really interesting theme in your book on um, transgression and gender in the roots of messianic dynasty? It's a big, big question. Uh, Let's see. Big question, very biographical. Yeah. Uh, yes, as of course, this is also a feministic question because part of uh, writing in this tradition of feministic reading and writing means that you can uh, situate yourself with your background and, and somehow. Yeah, the personal. The, yeah, bring the personal. Yeah, the person, it's like riddles of our life which lead us also to questions of research because research is always somehow involved in our very personal uh, biography. So I can say that in some way I grew up in a mythical childhood. So maybe mm. it's also an, why I deal so much with this concept of myth, myth not as a, um, something not true, rather as the, in, in ancient, uh, they use, Mythos, mythos is, is the story about gods, about connection between human and divine, a story that um, inform our life, that is imprint in every ritual and, and our deeds. Yeah, so, so myth as foundational narrative. 
that makes exactly of our life. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like uh, something to look at. So I grew up in a mythical reality, indeed. My parents were uh, brave and very inspired. They are still inspiring people. They uh, were leaders of underground community. Uh, they studied Hebrew, and it was, of course, um, very dangerous. And in everyday confrontation with the Soviet regime and uh, also studying Torah in underground, we, we switched houses. I was eight when I, uh, made, we made Aliyah, immigrated to Israel, but my parents tried to immigrate uh, when I was born. So for years, we were refused Nicks. And in order to run away from the KGB, who visited our home many uh, times, so they, they switched uh, apartments and uh, the places of study. And it was really like living in a myth, in an in unbelievable story. I myself sometimes cannot believe that this is my childhood. And I think I also, I grew up in a very unique environment where people from all ages, women and men, studying together Talmud and Kabbalah and Hebrew. And one of uh, those who sit around the table, he... Many people came, uh, they had um, American, I think, passports and, and foreign passports. They came to teach as if they were tourists, and it was really a mesirut nefesh, danger yes. of life. Uh, I saw th those people, I studied from them, and I heard the Hebrew, the Aramaic, the Aramaic of the Bavli, and the Aramaic of the Zohar, and somehow this language imprinted on my soul. I feel also, on the other hand, that I studied a lot from early childhood about the tension and gaps between myth and reality. So in some way, the book I wrote, my first book, dealing with the feminine dynasty, trying to uh, connect in a dialogue the big story, the myth, which hold contradictions and dark side and transgression with the question about women, women life, reality. What is, I will just give you an example, but questions of agency, of freedom of choices, of borders, of oppression, and the prices women pay for, for their freedom. So, so I feel both themes raised up also in my childhood, in, yeah. in a living contradictive reality and this paradoxical and uh, myster mysterious life of, of, uh, of the Jewry of Soviet Union in these years. Wow. Wow. Incredible. Incredible. Okay. So let's dive into some of these stories. They're amazing stories. Um, so, uh, so you characterize a paradigm, right? A, a, a really kind of a type scene using Robert Alter's uh, terminology of um, a mother who a woman who deceives the patriarch um, in order to conceive the seed, right? It's a seduction, a attempted seduction. So tell me this, just tell me briefly, what are the stories of the daughters of Lot, Judah and Tamar and Ruth, those three stories that you engage with in depth 
And what do these three stories have in common? So I would start with just briefly noting that the, the type scene, I think it's very important to emphasize that all of the messianic lineage, the mothers of the Messiah, first of all, they're for, foreigners, foreign women. And it already raises the question, do we use these women in order to do the, the uh, dirty job? We don't want, we bring the Moabites, the Canaanites. I know that before the, the uh, establishment of nationalism, when we speak about Lord daughters, of course, but, but yet we see that they're foreigners. The daughter of Lord, the first story, is the origins of Ruth the Moabite because the, the older uh, daughter of Lot, after the destruction of Sodom, she got pregnant with a son called Moab, Me'av, from the father. So we have here a very hard story of two daughters. The other one called her son uh, Amon, Ben-Ami, which is more gentle way to speak about this incest and adultery. But the first story is, is the hardest story in many mm -hmm. ways. Women in a total cosmic destruction, ruins of the city, which also symbolize ruins of the world. They thought that the world is destructed. That's why they slept with their father and seduced him. So the, the, this, the, it's a story of a Gnevat Zera. You steal this sperm, but, but it's in a way the world is destructed. They, they are the only women in, left in the whole world, their father is the only man in the world left. So in this story, we also see, uh, to add to the concept of destruction and the taboo of transgression, which is the most severe in this lineage, because later the connection will be again, as you said, a series of deceiving father figures and men in order to give birth to this messianic son. But here we see also absence of a mother figure. Her mm -hmm. mother, moment, looking back at the uh, destruction of the city, which we can say is the most normal uh, way of handling reality to look back, but she, she becomes this, um, uh, how you call it? Pillar uh, of salt, the pillar of pillar salt. Pillar of salt, exactly. Yes. <laughs> It's, it's kind of a way of uh, predicting the future and it's kind of response to trauma. You can become of assault looking back instead of looking forth and, and acknowledging what is going to happen in the cave of Tsoa. So these two daughters, they have sons from their father. And what is also very important in this lineage that the, the father figure, his here he is not symbolic father figure. He is a father indeed. He He didn't recognize, didn't know, and also the church fathers, they ask, how come you sleep with your daughter and you don't know? So it's a statement. It's a striking statement about recognition. You wrote about recognition beautifully, and you know, it's, it's a question. It's also sexual, of, of course, knowledge, and he's not there. So the Midrash will say, who was there? Who is the father? 
It's God. Moab, the upper father is God. We have wow. here a, with a connection in the first story. I will move on, but I, I just want to say that in the first story, we see contradiction between the myth and question of agency of gender and also of abuse of rape or in some way, I say rape because a few minutes ago in Genesis 19, the beginning of a story starts that their father Lot says to the people of the city, don't touch my guest please, but I have two daughters, virgins, and you can do them whatever you want. So we see here very, a painful example of, of not protected girls. Yes. His father suggests them to rape by the whole city, which is right. traumatic, and even though it didn't happen. And then later, Midah can I get Midah? Measure for measure, yeah. Measure for measure, they abuse him or use their uh, zera, his sperm, and, and become pregnant from him. So this is the first story. The second story speaks about Gdesha, which we can call holy prostitute or holy harlot. And Tamar is an amazing figure, already in the Bible, very strong and impressive woman. In the Azar, she became the Shekhinah, and there is a lot to say about that. But I will say that he's a symbol of someone who is struggling for justice, because Judah promised her his little son after the death of Aaron Donan, and she's fighting for her justice. So she's masquerading herself and she's disguising herself. In all these stories we see, which is also part of the type scene that I suggest, night and wine and masquerade and whale or handkerchief. So it's, it's kind of uh, attributes that help to uh, not exactly recognize who is who, what right. Wendy Donnie bad trick. So we have stories of bad tricks. The bad trick. In, right. Yeah. So the cave is kind of a womb which hides itself. And then Petach Enaim, the opening of the eyes, which is actually covering of the eyes because she's covered. So he, he, he could not recognize her. Again, we have here Lo Yadaki Kalatoi. He doesn't know that she is the... The question Not is how we will read yeah. So yeah. it's a daughter of in law or his kala, his promised and planned wife and um bride. Is she his bride, bride or is he his right that ambiguity of how to understand that term kala? Bride or or daughter in law. Beautiful. Is she the definitive one? Exactly. Yeah. Dar will add third meaning, kalatomilshon kilayon, from from world destruction, flaming. Kilui, it's it's something uh, flaming. So she is also the one who can burn the whole world. She she is full of this fire, also as part of of her fight for and struggle for justice. And it, indeed, in this story, we have already kind of development because. Again, it's a seduction and disguise and, and bad tricks and masquerade. But at the end, Judah says, Sadkamimeni, she's right, more than me. So already there is a dialogue between this father figure, who is really a father of her first husband and father-in-law, and then her husband. And Judah, so Judah recognized Tamar, and it's a development. And the last story 
is the beautiful Book of Ruth. Uh, there's a lot to say. <laughs> you will agree with me, I'm sure, about this journey of two women. Especially if we think about Tamar, uh, who is alone in a, in a male world, in a patriarchal uh, society and environment. She, she's going from hand to hand. Ruth. Shuvi, Ruth? Uh, no, or about Tamar. Oh, Tamar, 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 yeah. Tamar, uh, she's going back to the father of her, uh, to the house of her father, uh, Beta Via. Right. And there is Chia and Judah and Er and Onan and almost no women to protect her. We spoke about right. the daughters of absence of the mother. And then Tamar is alone in a male world. And suddenly we, we get to a story of women Feminist writers was written by a woman because it's it's such a feminine story. It's a private. It's the, it's it's the opposite of history. It's the her story. Mm -hmm. It's uh, with this uh, widowhood and uh, famine, hunger, and death again. All these stories starting with death and this. And it goes again to a birth of a son, as in the case of Moab, and then. And here, uh, Ishai and then David, and uh, Oved, Ishai David, I'm sorry, the, the baby is Oved. So, this story of sisterhood suggests kind of a repair to the whole lineage. That's how I see it. It's the most gentle stories. There is a sublimation. It's not incest, it's not prostitution, it's not harlotry. We see here something very gentle in the threshing floor. We don't know what exactly happened there, but there is a dialogue there between men and a woman. And although Naomi tells Ruth, go and he will tell you what to do. You should be beautiful and uh, uh, quiet, as uh, we can put it. Yeah, Ruth let us tell you what to do, right? What Perfume, dress, he will say what you should do. But Ruth, she says to him, you are my redeemer. And it's, it's, it's a turning point of a woman with a voice and a choice. So one of the main questions I try to, to deal with is the question of choice and, and agency. Mm -hmm. There is this problem that women in a patriarchal world, in oppression, they, they use and exploit their bodies because this is the only resource they have, the body, the sexuality. Mm -hmm. Yet we see this transformation and development of the stories that if the daughter of Lot has, have almost no choice, the mom, she has the choice to cover herself and to manipulate in order to get justice. And Ruth, it's, 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 she has a voice, she has a choice, much bigger choice. And she has now me as a mother figure, as a sister, as a big. So it's, it's very strong to see also the feminine narrative hidden in these stories. Hidden, yeah, hidden in these stories, beautiful. Um... So I want to push you a little bit because in chapter you had a really beautiful reading of chapter four where you juxtapose the feminine genealogy 
and the masculine genealogy. So the book of Ruth in chapter four ends with 10 generations from Peretz to then the child born to uh, Ruth and Boaz called Oved, then um, all the way to David, who will be the king. That's what we're told. And sort of that justifies the book of Ruth's integration into the canon, some people think. But then you point out this really interesting genealogy at the end of chapter four, where Judah and Tamar are mentioned, right? Um, the house of Peretz, whom Tamar and Judah begot. Whoever heard of the house of Peretz, right? The ancestor of David. And then uh, also Rachel and Leah are mentioned. Right, the, right, and that, that's, so we have this whole feminine genealogy that's mentioned. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you make of the juxtaposition between, let's say, the female uh, genealogy and the male seed? The standard, you know, he begat him, da-da-da-da-da, the standard begats. But, yes, yeah, so, so as you said, in the Bible, the genealogies usually are very laconic. And what we learn, if we read only biblical texts, that men give birth to men. That's what we have in life. Life built on lineage of men. And I think it's, it's very um, poetic and creative how the end of the Book of Ruth uses another way telling history and her story. Because there is a feminine genealogy, it doesn't go from one directly to the next generation. It jumps through generations. So we have Ruth and Naomi, and we hear the voices of the daughter of Lot, because Ruth is Moabite. And again, the destruction connected to the hunger and all these traumatic events and the seduction and the disease. And we hear, and then we, we get bracha. It's a blessing at the gate of the law. The, the patriarchal blessing goes back intertextually to the whole biblical stories, which we can say we should take them out of the Bible. We should uh, be quiet about them. And the book of Ruth emphasizes them, speaking right. about the, the voices, how King David was born and what is the way he came into this uh, world. So I think Rachel and Leah, it's also a very important example. They are not directly mothers of the Messiah in a sense that Leah is the mother of Judah. So she's also important, but, but the way the, the Book of Ruth brings them back is very important also to the Christian narrative, which maybe we will talk a little bit about. Yeah. To build it together. Right. We know that Leah is son of David, but Leah is the mother of Joseph, and there is also this myth of the Messiah of Rachel Joseph. Is so the mother of, Rachel is the mother of Joseph. Yeah. Yeah. Rachel and Leah of Judah. Of yeah. So putting them together, mm. who built it together, the yeah. house of Israel, this is the way also of Jesus, who, who is indeed son of Joseph and son of David in the genealogy of Matthew. But really interesting. 
Matthew's genealogy, yeah. So, Kerachel and Kelea, who built both of them, it's also a, it's, it's a unique way of making peace between these two struggling sisters. He called mm-hmm. the names of children. Rashem Kisnoani, Rashem Beoni. It's such a traumatic name, a name calling yeah. Of, yeah. of babies. So, Reuven, God sees my suffering, you know. Uh, lady, you know, perhaps my fa- my father will accompany me. My my husband will accompany. Yeah. So this is about her sorrow. Yeah. Leah's sorrow. Also, Naftali. Rachel says, the intertwining. Yeah. Beautiful. Um. Yeah, and that also Rachel and Leah in in uh in. Uh, rabbinic reading in Midrash also entails a bed trick, an exchange of signs and a de- deception on the wedding Two night. women in one bed. One is uh, yes. on the bed and talking. The it's bed. like uh, Yaakov and Esav, whose yeah. voice is indeed the voice you hear. Yeah. So I want to go back. Um, so I want to look deep. There's another Midrash that you bring in. Um, so he, we have a combination of deception, we have foreignness, we have disguise, we have transgression, what you've called the antinomian tendency. Um, I just want you to flesh out what is the antinomian component to the book of Ruth? How is that transgression subtly conveyed? And... I also want to ask you whether you see a progression from the daughters of Lot to Judah and Tamar and to um, the book of Ruth. So just unpack that transgression that's going on there, the transgressive element. So if we um, focus on this motif, which I, if you ask me personally, I started with transgression, writing my book, and I ended up with a a myth of birth. And that's why my next book was, the second book was about birth in psychoanalysis and Kabbalah. But I started with the paradox of sin and redemption. And I saw the first story, there is the taboo of adultery and incest, which we know in Leviticus, in the the chapters of Isurei Arayot, of the prohibition of incest, it's like the most uh, illicit and, and uh, severe sin, and it's connected to um, the, the purity of blood. It's connected also to the symbol that God is the husband in the Bible, and uh, the nation is the wife, and all kinds of adultery under this rubric of Gilwar Ayot. How you translate so, uh, it's, it's uh, I would say sexual transgression because it includes all sorts. It's not just incest, but it also includes lying with a woman who's menstruous. Um, it includes uh, adultery. So it's it's a broad. So I would say forbidden sexual relation. Literally, it means the revealing of the naked, right? Gilui legalote. Exactly. Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah. Um, so, so it's connected to, to the idea that um, idol, idolatry, idolatry, 
idolatry. idolatry and adultery connected in, in the biblical uh, mythical thought, especially in, in the prophet. God wants Hoshea and Yechezkel, God possessed the nation and every turning to, to another God is kind of Avodah Zarah. So, so all, all very emphasized in the biblical uh, text. Yeah. It's not a mistake that the Messiah, the first story of the birth of Ruth, the Moabite in the cave of Lord Daughter starts with, I think it's, it's, it's in purpose, starts with incest and hard incest, which, which is, a, there is a lot to say because in the biblical law, it's not mentioned father and daughters. It's right. something the also missing. very positive, missing, yeah. but it's the most important thing. It's almost as if it's uh, deliberately repressed, like the father-daughter incest motif is deliberately repressed in the Bible, which is fascinating. Tikva from Kensky writes about that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. What do you make I of that? Also, uh, I also thought about... Uh, uh, Claude Levi-Strauss, who, who is writing about the structure of kinship, and he puts this, this taboo of incest as the beginning of culture. Mm. And it's so interesting, the circle that is already in the Bible built between Acharit and Reshit, like the end of the Messiah and the beginning of time, which starts with destruction of Sodom, kind of repeating of the, the flow and well, of the first father, The first act of father-daughter incest is Adam and Eve. Eve is born of Adam. And that's right. A, so this yeah. is one the other reading yeah. that it's an incest of a, a brother and sister. You uh-huh. can say that this kind of equality and auto uh-huh. rank than others that see anyway <laughs> all culture in Greek and in Egypt every culture starts with incest because there is only one source to start with so you must mm. use your flesh in order to procreate it's it's really strong then we have a repetition of it in Sodom mm-hmm. so I think uh, speaking about uh, religion and culture it's ca- kind of a way of um, Unraveling the unraveling culture back, you unravel it to its sources to the moment to the beginning of time. Chaos and yeah, chaos, the beginning uh, of chaos, yeah. And then culture is about um, sublimating that primary incest. Yes, exactly. That's what I'm trying to say. So in order to, to give birth to Messiah, you must unravel, you must uh, deal with a dark side, you must deal with destruction. Otherwise, he cannot be the Redeemer. He needs mm. to, these two addictive uh, qualities in himself in order to redeem. It's also very interesting just to note here that the Messiah is not the hero of the story. He's just the, the, the product, he's the, the fruit, but the stories are in the Bible and then in the Midrash and in the Zor, the story struggle and 
pay such a high price in order to labor this baby. This is the story. So you asked me about sub sublimation and about the, the, this uh, gentle transgression in a book of proof. So the Shah in the story of Tamar, of course, it's also the, the one of the uh, prohibited relations between a uh, father-in-law and, and uh, Tamar and Judah. This is the case of Gdesha, and that's why she's almost born on the fire when she become pregnant. In the story of Ruth, it's interesting to note that Yosefus, for example, he said nothing happened there in the threshing floor. So why, why he has the need to say nothing happened? Because the rumors say, of course, he came to her at that night, and maybe this is, there is also Midrash that was died night after she became pregnant. So there is a tension there between law, the correct, and the incorrect, the innocent and the, uh, the, the not innocent. Transgressive, uh, yeah. Sexuality, I think it's, it's very, it's not incest, it's not adultery, it's not uh, harlotry, but something going uh, on there and it repeating, as you said, return of the repressed of all other stories of bubbleness and tricks and the um, masquerade and deceit. Yeah, beautiful. Okay, and so you think that it's uh, deliberately ambiguous as to whether a seduction takes place in the threshing floor scene. Um, but I think for me, I mean, I, I've written about this a little bit, uh, that uh, the important thing is that there's a conversation and there's a recognition, whereas Judah didn't recognize Tamar when they had sexual relations, she disguised herself as a harlot. And certainly, uh, Lot was completely drunk when he had sex with his, right? It says he did not know her lying down and her getting up, right? Um, so really, this is very different, right? And he, uh, she, there's recognition, there's, there's, there's consciousness. And uh, I agree. Yeah. And that, that I would just say that I love a lot. I love your reading. I think it's, it's a key uh, verb. Hakerna. Yeah. It's like the, what is the moment? Please recognize. Yeah. Please recognize. Yeah. Yeah. What is the moment for the woman to recognize herself that she has her own voice and she can hear it for herself, first of all, and then say it out loud. So the daughter of Lot, they're shtukiyot. They have no voice. They're silent, yes. They're totally silent. Then Tamar, she says, not at the moment of the oppression, not at the moment of, the, of, uh, of Petah Hinaim, of the seduction, but later she says, Akerna, this is the Please the recognize. Moment yeah she's asking for recognition and mm. then in the book of there is as you wrote beautifully indeed recognition and dialogue yeah yes it's interesting and this is the brilliance and then really the the poetic uh, the way the book of Ruth is written is always ambiguous in each verse Miad Biti, when she coming back from this night with Boaz, Naomi asking her, who are you? As if she doesn't know who is she. So yeah. the Midrash says what happened there because yeah. it transforms the woman. So again, we see, and also Boaz asks her, who are you? And these questions, yeah. I think it's like the question of 
of God to Adam, like, who are you? You should answer your, yourself. So it's a lot about also self-recognition. And here we say it's development. We see development mm-hmm. in this. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Yeah, so that's sort of a, a redemptive arc that takes us through those three main stories. So that brings us into a text that I want to you to share with us, to read with us. Um, I'm going to, it's from the Zohar, and maybe you can give us a little bit of background on what the Zohar is and this particular text that we're going to look at. It's on, if people buy the book, I hope people will buy this book, It's on page 190 of the book, and um, I'm going to read a little section from the Zohar. First, maybe you tell us a little bit of background. I'll read it, and uh, I want to see what you do with this text, because you are a brilliant reader of text. You know, that's, that's what I love about your creative, psychoanalytic, and anthropological approach to, to reading it. Um, so give us a little bit of background on Zohar, and then we'll dive deep into this text. Thank you, Rachel. Before I give a brief introduction to the Zohar, I just want to say a word about psychoanalysis. So yes, I did that's a really helpful. analysis in my research with gender theory and also psychoanalytic theory. Uh, because I feel that these texts, and especially the Zohar, which is a mystical composition, written in Castile at the end of 13th century, although it's masquerading itself as pseudo-epigraphic, Tanaic uh, text written in century in the cave of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, speaking about caves and uh, hidden uh, secrets and... uh, And Fire burning, right? (laughs) He burns up the world. Everything is burning. (laughs) Exactly. And... Uh, the Zohar, as I see it, uh, especially the Zohar, we can say it about Kabbalah, but, but let's speak about the Zohar. The Zohar deals with the richness of the soul. We started with biography. So the Zohar believes that the, the richest thing in the world is human biographies, mm-hmm. process development of um, the brokenness of the soul and repair. And... Um, I think this moment we spoke of, uh, just now of self-recognition, it's very psychological thing. That it's, this is the only person in life to recognize his role in this world, to understand himself. Like, like this no know yourself. Know thyself. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So the Zohar 
building as a mythical text connection between divine and human and this process of cleaving the good, cleaving to God or union mystica of goes through human biography. If we mm. deal, for example, if our stories, I would say that Tamar, Ruth, the daughter of Lot, they all part of the biography of the Shekhinah, the divine wow. concert, wife of God. She is part of divinity, but she is also identified with this world. Amazing. And all their stories happening in kind of ritual all the time. All the time the Shekhinah goes to the cave of Tsar and she's begetting a child from her father through wow. incest. Should go to the darkest places as Tamar, who uh, wailing herself, sitting in this place called the opening of the eyes. So yeah, the Shina crashing floor. The Shina goes through these hard journeys in order to bring redemption, redemption to herself and also to the world, which is mm. she is us and we are her. So it's very paradoxical and there is a symbolic language and it's, there is a mystical language, but it also, also deals with 10 powers called the Sfirot. And Shekhinah is the most important, maybe she's the last, but not, she's like the upper. Uh, because she's Malchut and Keter Malchut, she's like uh, the 10th, but also the first one. And uh, is a whole structure of language dealing with mystical, reality, yet focus on the human story and, and the, the, on, on this struggle to life. And the feminine, which is maybe the most important, the, the, the revolution in the Kabbalistic thought may be connected to also to veneration of Mary in the Middle Ages, is the way Jewish writer give voice to a feminine sub subjectivity. Sorry, subjectivity. Yes, yeah, sorry. Yeah, so it's, it's very personal and very feminine. And um, maybe we will read this uh, paragraph and then say something about uh, the symbolism of the Shekhinah in, in uh, also psychoanalytic sense and gender sense, how I see it. And of course, I know that in some way it's anachronistic to use theories, current theories on texts written in the 13th century. But since the Kabbalists, they, they're trying to speak the language of the soul, the riddles and the mystery of the dark side of humanity and uh, the enlightened parts, the Zohar is the book of light, uh, all the books of Kabbalah, mainly called by name of enlightenment and, and uh, revelation and the eyes, opening of the eyes, speaking about Tamar, who opens the eyes of Judah and then of, of the world. So mm -hmm. let's read it. And maybe okay, great. Say. Okay, so I'm going to take it up. So what we're doing is we're back in, in the scene of the threshing floor in, in Ruth in chapter three. And um, uh, he asked her, Boaz asks Ruth, Biti, Miat, my daughter, who are you in exile? Who are you at this moment? And she replied, I am Ruth, your handmaid. 
brimming. Okay, so there's a word, there's a play on word from root, me'arvat or me'urvat. I am brimming with sorrow, overflowing with pain over my children in exile and over the holy palaces. For I have been exiled from my sanctuary and it is not enough that I've been banished, but they abuse and curse me every day on account of them. And I have no voice in exile to respond. So take it away. What do you do with that? You know, Ruth as... I I remember how I read it first time, this uh, drasha. I have a wonderful teacher. His name is Yuda Libes. And I'm studying Zohar with him for 20 years. And I remember how first time we had a chavruta. And I looked at this Aramaic word. Words, I will say it in Aramaic. Let li puma begaluta la shivlon. I have no, uh, I have no, I have no mouth. Yeah, I have no mouth, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's what the Zohar say in Aramaic, which is the language it's written. It's like a uh, Sholem and Tishbi, uh, they call the, the Aramaic of the Zohar artificial Aramaic because it's poetical language invented, not uh, used a spoken language. Let me puma begaluta my PhD, and I started studying many theories in, in gender studies. So I thought about Gilligan and thought about Kristeva uh, and Lossi Rigaray and about um, Helen Sixu, who, who writes how women, they're writing with the milk of their body instead of the phallic uh, pen, and all these images coming to me back about the voice, about uniqueness of, of the feminine. A mouth and, and existence and and I thought that it's amazing because I, I knew that there are other readings in the Zohar speaking about the name Ruth it's like full of Meruva Meruva so she can be full of poetry the Midrash says in the Talmud that why her name is Ruth because King David came from her and he wrote psalms to God and uh, poems so that's why she's rude. She's full of potential through the, the... So in English, we would use the word soaked through. Exactly. Uh, saturated. Like yeah, but it's appropriation. And then the czar in, a, in another place say, Ruth, it's such an optimistic name. She is writing herself poetry to God. So it's more feministic reading. But here, suddenly the, the picture twisted. We have a discussion at night between, between men and a woman, but at the same time, it's a discussion happens in a heavenly realm between God and the Shekhinah. And God is crying on the temple that he himself dis- destroyed. And he is screaming. We, we couldn't read the whole passage, but it's, it's a long drasha, a long homily. And then suddenly he's asking her, who are you? which, as you said, it's a moment, very uh, touching moment, moment of recognition, of subject, subjectivity, and of fully being, standing in front of the other. And she's answering, I'm full of sorrow. And what does it mean to be full of sorrow for the Shekhinah? Not enough that there is destruction, and I lost my children, and she, 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 the house, the home, which is the image in Kabbalah of destruction of the private house is a symbol of the 
exile and the destruction of the temple, but I have no voice to answer to those who are cursing me. So I thought it's, it's amazing, Rasha, talking about the pain of the Shekhinah and trying to give voice to this feminine subject, to speak her pain. And then the answer of God, we, we would not read it, but it's at the next page, Lini Alayla. Boaz says to, to Ruth, stay, wait to the end of the night. So how the Zohar will read it? Uh, using the Midrash also, that night is a symbol of, of the darkness, of, of exile, of suffering. You should wait to the end of time of suffering, and then I will redeem you. So it's God saying to the Shekhinah, I promise to come back and redeem you. I'm not forgetting you. So this dialogue, this intimate uh, ability to talk, I think it's amazing to uh, project it onto divinity. We can say that the whole Kabbalah projection, but when you get it back, you see how deep is human relationship can be through the reading of the divine realm. Beautiful, beautiful. So Boaz is God, and Ruth is the Shekhinah, and God and the Shekhinah are in this conversation, and God is saying to the Shekhinah, wait, I know you're brimming with sorrow. You're brimming, you're soaked through with sorrow. Wait the night, sleep the night here, and then I will redeem you. And the very next morning, Boaz, at the gate of the law, redeems Ruth by giving her seed and, and redeeming uh, the land and, uh, and life finds a way, right? Against all exactly. calamity. It's beautiful. Exactly. Really a, a beautiful, and my, it's a, an allegorical, but it's also psychological and intimate. Um, it's a very interesting weaving of theology through an allegorical reading of a very personal story, human story. I agree. So this is the, the, the brightness of the czar. They, they are very good in doing exactly this weaving. And I think my aim was to be inspired by, by it, but also to recognize lack of agency and power here. So when I used it in the chapter about truth in the czar, I contradict two other texts talking about someone who redeeming herself, who is going to seduce Boaz. And the Zohar in another says, says that, of course, at that night, she gave, uh, she become pregnant and she seduces him and she was the active one. Here we see that her role is to wait, to suffer, mm. to ask help from the male. Mm. Uh, yeah. Power. Yeah. So she's waiting. She's passive. And I think it's it's also very strong talking about gender question, how the Zor can speak both narratives about the Shekhinah. In some places, the Shekhinah, she holds a gun and, and a sword, and she's indeed Amazon, kind of a <laughs> figure. Later on, it was developed in Shabbat. Sabbatian and a Frankistic movement, these women who are inspired by the Shekhinah, who is the, the, the fighting, who is going in front of, of the whole nation to, to the war. And on the other hand, the Shekhinah sometimes is so weak. And also the enigmatic term, Vategal Margelotav, she uncovered his feet, which you, you also 
connected to Giloet, as you said, to, uh, to revealing nakedness. In this, she's falling into dust, she's crying, she's broken. In other reading, she's doing some transgressive deed and seduces him. So it's beautiful to see how the Zohar used enigmatic biblical term and reads it in two different ways. Beautiful. Um, so we're going to, we're on our denouement, huh? we're, we're moving towards the end of our conversation. I just want to, uh, for those who are not Jewish, um, who are familiar with the Christian tradition, in your epilogue, you engage with the story of Mary as a sort of a sequel or perhaps informative of the Zohar tradition on these three transgressive women. Can you say a little bit about what Mary, uh, Mary and how she fits into this and um, maybe as a point of contrast or, um, yeah, tell me, tell me. Uh, okay, so um, I think what I tried to raise as a question was the anomality of messianic myth. <laughs> In a sense that if we are talking about archetypes, mm. just like Ruth, Tamar, the daughters of Lot, and also another figure, I will mention her in a moment, there are not a model we can imitate. Oh. It's a oscillation between virginity, the story of Mary, who was found pregnant by the Holy Ghost, or this seductive, active, and strong mothers who are also, in a way, are un it's anomality in the okay, sense that... Okay, so you mean anomalous? Do you mean anomalous? Yeah, yeah anomalous. Yeah, exactly. They, sorry. They, I'm sorry for yeah. my English. Yeah. No, it's... Yeah, Thank I you. can... Okay. So they're anomalous in the sense that we, can, we don't live out their stories in our own life. It's very radical edges. Yeah. And it's not... A, it's one of the main paradoxes, I think, before we go to polemic and, and dialogue between Judeo-Christian culture, that a woman who wants to imitate Mary's way, she needs a virginal birth, she needs a, a miracle, but, but it's not the, the normal way women want to fulfill their motherhood and sexuality. So on the one hand, there is a contradiction between Mary and the mothers of the Messiah in the Bible. In a sense, that she was found she she is not uh, enthusiastic in in this scene in uh, Matthew, and they are doing so much and working so hard in order to give birth in reality of uh, hunger and destruction and uh, suffer and widowhood and so on. Yet it's interesting that Matthew, starting with the genealogy of Jesus as the Vedic lineage, as the myth, as continuation of the biblical text, he uses four names of women. Again, it's a genealogy of men, as all the biblical genealogies, but he, inside this text, we, we suddenly find these four women. So we have Ruth and Tamar, of course, we know. And then two women who are not clearly part of the genealogy, but Bathsheba, who is a 
the mother of Solomon and the wife of David after an act of adultery and, and a, such a hard scene in Samuel. And Rahab, about whom we know that her role was that she was a prostitute. So Rahab is not connected maybe to the lineage, but she signs again the same narrative of foreign women, but Sheva, I think she was Hittite. And uh, Rahab. Her, hu- her husband was a Hittite. Hittite. So maybe we yeah. don't know. We don't know. Anyway, she could be an outsider. Yeah. She is yeah. half an outsider or a foreigner. And then Rahab, Ruth, Tamar, and Batsheba, there are the genealogy of Jesus from the feminine side, the her story. And then we come to Mary. So I suggested in the book that Mary is the return of the repressed of this feminine genealogy. On the one hand, she is the opposite, but at the same time, virginity is also a way of transgression. It's a way of, it's like the bringing other in the other seed, bringing complexity. another seed. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Another seed, bringing seed from God. Mm-hmm. And this seed, fruit of this seed is part of the same lineage. Our tension of, of transgression. Again, it's a way of. Then we have in the Midrash many examples of. Um, explanations that reflect the influence of Christian uh, myth, as, as you said just now, Moab from the upper father. It sounds clearly influence of the Mary herself was born from. Okay, so, um, yeah, so, so there's, a, I mean, I, I think also in your introduction, you hint at this sort of primal tension between sexuality and motherhood. And, uh, Mary is at the apex of it, but that connection goes all the way back to um, this incestuous, transgressive um, mothers of the Messiah motif. Um, so I want it, to, it, it, it's all fascinating. Um, so Ruth, do you want to say anything more about this tension between sexuality, seduction, and motherhood, which you spoke about quite uh, movingly in your introduction. I would say that for me, when I wrote a book as a child, um, question of fulfillment of different aspect of femininity, I would say, and of motherhood, sometimes contradictive. I saw it, for example, in this uh, myth of the birth of Jesus also as, as kind of maybe a tragic moment that Mary, she's, she, she has no choice. And also the mothers of the Messiah in the Bible, in a way, they have a very narrow choice. But they're the compelled. Coming from... What do you say? Say it again. They're compelled. They're compelled to do this drastic action. And they live on the edge and they are compelled and they use the resources they have, which is seduction and temptation and and promiscuity. I, I feel that for me, dealing with these narratives and 
writing about them, it was really important in the sense, uh, you know, also psychoanalytically speaking, every person looks for his own redemption. Geula, it's not only this redeemer, the Messiah, the person that has, it's something symbolic in your soul. What you can suggest to yourself as a redemption, as a, an answer to an, an enigmatic questions to riddles of your life. So to me, I felt that it's crucial as a feministic also writer to answer and to deal with, at least not to answer, but to raise the questions about the tension sometimes between motherhood and femininity and sexuality mm-hmm. and the places all these can be part of what we call our multiple self, mm-hmm. which are different of personality. And I felt that in a sense, the Zohar and also the Bible and the Midrash, we didn't have time enough to speak different readings of this uh, dynasty, but it's amazing to see how deep the personality in, in uh, the commentary on these stories. So yes, I think to me, it, it was kind of a personal redemption and giving voice to, to these mothers and women because the Bible asks to give, him, to give them voice, to give them subjectivity. I think this question uh, attributed to Freud, what, what the woman wants, mm-hmm. uh, is, is like an internal question. Uh, and the answer in my book was that women want to give birth as an answer to death. Oh. They, and I mean give birth not only to babies, which is of course important, but to give life, to be fertile. Yeah. Yeah, create yeah. something new. There is yeah. destruction, city destruction, destruction of the world, destruction of justice, destruction of uh, of the paternal uh, justice, also and 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 uh, law. And they suggest none. They give life. They yeah. are very generous. Beautiful. Beautiful. Um. Yeah. Um, so I want to now uh, segue to your your second book, which is all about birth, right? Um, uh, so your second book, published in 2018, was Human Ropes, Birth in Kabbalah and Psychoanalysis. Can you just give us a very, you know, two-minute synopsis uh, about what this book is and maybe talk about what your future directions are? I will try in two minutes. Mm-hmm. I would say that, again, uh, dealing more and more with big tech, not only the Zohar, but also later generation Luriani Kabbalah and also the origins of Kabbalah, uh, led me into this understanding that Kabbalists are interested in the feminine soul in the same sense of, to say, profiliation? Pirion, profiliation, uh, yes? Uh, I'd say fertility. Fertility, fertility. Uh, prolific, um, prolific, exactly. proliferation, so, so proliferation, that, fertility. Yeah. yeah, that's what they meant. Thank you. So, God or divinity is birthing itself all the time, and uh, the Kabbalist, based on the Midrash, talking about the idea of Tzelem Elohim, the, the image of God in the man, 
in a sense that it's not enough to be born in your physical body, but you should find what, what you are to fulfill yourself fully in order to give this face of the Shekhinah in the world place. So there is a processes of growth from this state of mind of embryonic and then a development into your full image. I think this is one of the main concepts the Kabbalah dealing with. And I try to, to show parallels in, in languages between psychoanalytic um, discussion of our memories from the womb and the, 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 the beginning of life and the place of, of birth as the most crucial moment in, in our life, maybe more than death, because in, in the meaning of life built on death, but here birth is the big thing. Birth is the moment we came from nothingness into yes, into being. So uh, I tried to, to build a bridge between psychoanalysis and Kabbalah in the languages they talk about the, the crucial moment of birth. Beautiful. And so what are you working on now? Yeah. So in some way, our conversation coming just on time because I finished exactly now this week, my third book, dealing with King David. And uh, during the whole uh, writing of the book about the mother of the Messiah, I felt that there is so much to say about David as a hero with thousand faces already in the Bible and then in, and then in the Zohar. So my book focuses on Kabbalah because in Kabbalah there is a revolution. David is the Shekhinah. He, like the mothers of his lineage, because of them, become the Shekhinah, the divine presence. Almost every page and every homily in the Zohar deals with David as feminine figure, mm. which is because it's also maybe an answer to polemics uh, between Jews and Christians in the Middle Ages because Jews were accused of being feminine. So they say, yes, we are feminine, but it's, it's a virtue. It's something to be proud of. And mm. David he is the Malchut. He's ruling the world. I also thought about this concept that they don't have agency and they don't have autonomy and they don't have political freedom. But what they have, they have Malchut, they're ruling in the divine realm. So it's, mm -hmm. it's also dealing with the same questions of identity, of gender reversal, how male figure become the Shekhinah, so feminine and so weak. And maybe the Zohar uses David the feminine in order to clean him from the scene. He's not mm -hmm. responsible because he's a woman. So the many interesting questions uh, which I left when I wrote about the mothers of the Messiah. Now I hope that it will be published in my new book. Thank you so much. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you so much, Ruth, um, for being our guest on New Books in Jewish Studies. I want to invite readers to look for her book, Holiness and Transgression, Mothers of the Messiah in the Jewish Myth, published by Academic Studies Press in 2017. Is that right? And I'm yes. looking forward to reading the fruits of your next research project, both the one on birth and the one on King David, um, and also your poetry. Uh, you clearly have a really stunning poetic soul, and um, it's just been a 
such a pleasure to have a conversation with you and um, thank you for your time. Thank you, Rachel. It was wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you for these deep questions and uh, these, uh, underst uh, your understanding and this uh, dialogue. Thank you. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.